0: Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland, and this is the true story. True story. Of six strangers picked to live in a dome on a simulated Martian environment to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. The real world. Simulated Mars. Alright guys, so um, first of all, anyone who doesn't recognize what that intro is, you are among my younger listeners. That was a reference to MTV's The Real World. Uh, today we're doing an episode that is from a listener request. Listener Jeremiah Wright sent me a message on Twitter and asked that I cover a recent experiment aimed at testing what it might be like to send human explorers to Mars. It was a project conducted by the Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation. And the acronym is HI-SEAS. H-I-S-E-A-S. So expect lots of pirate voices. Yar, as we talk about going to the Martian landscape. I'll try and limit that as much as possible. I know a lot of you find that cringeworthy. Rightly so. But hey, we should be in September now. And that's Talk Like a Pirate Days in September. So we have that to look forward to. But yeah, I'm going to concentrate on that, talk about the project, what went into it, some of the tech that was involved, why it was happening in the first place, what they were expecting to get out of it, and how it all turned out. So let's uh, set the ground first by talking about what Mars is like and why it's important for us to simulate as many different scenarios as we possibly can before going to Mars, uh, if you've seen or read The Martian, you probably have some ideas of what Mars must be like. And uh, for those who have not seen the movie or read the book, I highly recommend it. It is not 100% scientifically accurate. There are some major liberties taken in both the novel and the movie. I'd say more so in the movie than the novel, but both of them have major liberties. But it is very entertaining, and the science in it, in general, is pretty good. Uh so if you have not seen the movie or read the book check it out it's my recommendation anyway you know that Mars does not have a breathable atmosphere it has very low air pressure uh has very extreme temperatures uh but here are some of the liberties that both the film and the novel took and these are not spoilers really one is that uh there are some major wind storms dust storms that play an important role in both versions of the story. And the density of the Martian atmosphere is way too low to have that devastating dust storm happen. Uh, The air is literally too thin to hold larger particulates. So you could have dust blowing around, but it wouldn't be blowing around in huge amounts and not at such enormous force because there's just not enough air there. It's, It's not dense enough. And uh, so that is problematic. But, hey, there had to be an emergency in the story in order to get to the the um, the plot point of a stranded astronaut left behind on Mars. You had to have something happen so that you could have the central uh, uh, conflict set up. And so I, I give it a pass. It's not a huge deal breaker. But it wouldn't actually happen that way on Mars. Also, the gravity on Mars is just 38% that of Earth's gravity. Mars is less massive than Earth, and so its gravitational pull is less than that of Earth. It's greater than the Moon's. The Moon is about one sixth, and Mars is a little more than one third. But that means it would also be easier to pick up heavier stuff. So if you're an astronaut and you have to pick up something that weighs more than you typically could carry, you would probably be able to lift it without too much trouble. It might still be very bulky and cumbersome, but you could lift it. Lift it. But it also means as you move around, you'd be a lot more bouncy. You wouldn't just walk across. Uh, the other big, big issue is that the surface of Mars receives way more radiation than the surface of Earth. Now, this is due to a couple of things. One of those is that it has that thin atmosphere, which uh, does not allow much protection. Earth's atmosphere is one of the reasons we are so, uh, so able to survive. I was trying to find a better word for it. But really, the atmosphere provides a great deal of protection for us, not just the fact that we breathe the oxygen in the atmosphere, but it slows down a lot of radiation or blocks radiation from getting to us. Another is that Mars does not have a strong magnetic field like Earth does. Uh, our magnetic field also protects us from other types of radiation, and Mars lacks that. So if you were on the surface of Mars, you would be subjected to way more radiation than you would encounter here on Earth. And uh, we humans don't deal with that too well. All right, so a little bit more about Mars besides those issues I had with the Martian. Uh, Mars' atmosphere being so thin means that liquid water doesn't tend to exist on its surface for very long. There may be liquid water underneath the the surface of the soil, uh, especially since it mixes with some other stuff that lowers the freezing point of water. But most water is going to end up freezing. Um, It's not going to stay in liquid form for very long. The atmosphere is primarily carbon dioxide. And by primarily, I'm talking 96% of the atmosphere is CO2, which is not great for us. Uh, nitrogen makes up less than 2% of the atmosphere on Mars here on earth. Nitrogen is the most plentiful element in our atmosphere. It accounts for 78% of our atmosphere and oxygen, which on earth is like 21% of our atmosphere is only found in trace amounts in the Martian atmosphere. So you would not be able to breathe. Even if the atmosphere were more thick than it is, you wouldn't be able to breathe there because there's not enough oxygen to support life, uh, from Earth on Mars. At least not life like us. There's some life forms that would do alright in that environment, uh, if you ignored other factors like the radiation. Now, not, not everyone says that carbon, uh, carbon dioxide rich atmosphere is necessarily a bad thing. Some scientists have actually suggested we might use the CO2 in the atmosphere to help generate rocket fuel for a return trip to Earth, which would be an enormous help because that means we would only have to carry half as much fuel as we would need for a round trip, right? We would just take the fuel we need to get to Mars and then create the fuel we need to get back to Earth while we're on Mars. And weight in space launches is a deal breaker. If you get too much weight... It becomes too difficult and too expensive. So you want to limit the amount of weight as much as you can when you're sending stuff out into space so that you don't hit that critical point where it's just too difficult and too expensive to do. So if we were able to make our fuel on Mars for the return trip home, that would be enormous. Of course, you could also plan a trip to Mars where there is no return trip home. It's a one-way ticket. And in fact, there are some uh some projects that have been proposed that essentially would be that. It would be a one-way trip to Mars, and that's where you would live out the rest of your life, which possibly would not be that much longer, Uh because Mars is a very hostile environment. But assuming you want to get back, being able to make rocket fuel on the surface of Mars is a pretty good deal. Now, I said that temperatures on Mars have a pretty wide range, and it is incredibly wide. It goes from about 70 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 20 degrees Celsius, down to negative 225 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 153 degrees Celsius. So a Martian winter at night gets awful chilly. Uh, obviously we would want to locate any habitats that we would put on Mars in, an, in a, probably a belt closest to the most stable temperature on the planet. Um, And if we were to go there, we'd have to be there for a really long time. I didn't really put this in my notes, but I can talk about it. The orbits of Earth and Mars are such that at certain points, they are fairly close together, or at least as close as they get. And then as they continue their orbits, they start to spread apart. So if you think of Earth as a circle, uh, you know, that is the orbit of Earth. That's one circle. And then a slightly larger circle on the outside is Mars. And then you just imagine how they're both traveling at different speeds, so they start to spread apart. Eventually you get to a point where Earth and Mars are on opposite sides of the sun from each other. And then if you go long enough, they line up again. Well, when you are launching stuff to get from Earth to Mars, you want to travel the least amount of distance possible. It's just like I was talking about with the weight. The weight is going to be an issue and the distance is an issue. So you want to fire your rockets so that the pathway that the rocket takes is the least amount of distance. And that doesn't mean waiting until Earth and Mars are closest, because it's an eight-month journey to get from, around eight months, to get from Earth to, to Mars. So you actually have to shoot ahead of time. It's, it's that idea. You're not shooting where Mars is. You're shooting where Mars is going to be. And this involves a lot of complicated math, knowing about the planetary orbits and just uh, the geometry involved and making sure that you are conserving as much fuel as possible. Same thing on the return trip. Uh So if you were to land on Mars, by the time you landed on Mars, Earth and Mars would no longer be ideally situated. You would have to wait for them to line up again, and that can take a long time, like about two years, essentially, more than a year. And, um, and that means that if you're going to land on Mars, you're going to be there for a while, assuming that you are being very careful with your fuel. If somehow fuel is no longer an issue, like we've magically created cold fusion or something, uh, then that would not be... You wouldn't have to worry about it as much. You would have more time in space itself because you would still have to travel a long distance from Mars back to Earth, but you wouldn't have to worry about waiting for the opportune time, that window, when the distance is going to be at the smallest amount. All right. Getting back to Mars... The regolith on Mars, which is the soil on Mars, uh, could be very problematic, too. The Phoenix Lander discovered traces of perchlorate in the regolith. Uh, this is a salt derived from perchloric acid. On the plus side, that stuff can be used as a propellant, uh, like an oxidizing agent, within rocket fuel. So again, you could use this stuff to help create rocket fuel on the surface of Mars, along with the carbon dioxide that you're taking from the atmosphere. Uh, so that's kind of cool. But on the downside, perchlorate can have a toxic effect on humans, particularly when it comes to the thyroid gland. So you'd have to be careful. Like, uh, if, you, if you've if you been keeping count, the radiation will kill you, the atmosphere will kill you, the uh, uh, temperatures could kill you, and the soil will kill you on Mars. Mars is trying to kill you really hard. So... It's another thing you have to take into account if you're going to send human beings there. However, all that being said, the Martian soil also seems to contain nutrients that are necessary to grow plants. And in fact, NASA has conducted several experiments using simulated Martian soil because we've never, we've never taken a sample from Mars and brought it back to Earth, right? So we've simulated Martian soil using soil primarily from places like Hawaii around uh, volcanic plains, which is, again, that's going to go back to the simulated habitat we're going to talk about in just a minute. So they've taken that soil and they tried to grow stuff in it, and they've been successful with those experiments. Both NASA and other uh, facilities have grown crops. And so it looks like we would be able to do the same on Mars. Now, if we were to do that, we would have to have the plants inside a habitat because you would have to have the air pressure there to allow liquid water to exist. And we would need to leach the perchlorate out of the soil in order to make sure that it's not going to affect the plants. But that's something we could do. It's not It's not impossible. It's not even really that difficult. We could do it. It would take some effort, but we could do it. And you would probably have to add some fertilizer to the soil to make sure it has plentiful nutrients for plant life because Mars has not had any life on it. If it ever has had life on it, it's been a really, really long time. So you would have to, you know, you don't have that cycle, that nitrogen cycle, uh, the carbon cycle, all that stuff that allows for uh, plant life to flourish here on Earth. That hasn't been going on on Mars in a very long time, if in fact it ever has happened. So we would have to add fertilizer to the soil. But it would probably work. So that's super cool. All right, let's get into the experiment. Simulating life on Mars here on Earth is problematic. Problematic. Very tricky, right? Because for one thing, all of the elements I just mentioned, we cannot really replicate here on Earth, nor would we want to. It would actually put people in serious danger. We would want to engineer uh, as many solutions to problems as we possibly could here on Earth without actually subjecting people to really dangerous conditions until we got to a point where we were really confident that the solutions we had created would protect people from those conditions, you know, once you get to that, re- that that level, you will find people willing to take on that risk. I mean, if we didn't have people like that, then test flight engineers would never happen, right? We would never get test pilots who are some of the craziest people on the planet. And I say that with respect. The the You know, they take enormous risks in experimental aircraft and push it to the limit in order to advance our engineering and scientific knowledge, which is amazing to me. Same thing is true for astronauts. Same thing is true for people who are testing the equipment that eventually astronauts will rely upon to keep them alive. But we don't have to worry about radiation the way we would on Mars. Uh, The atmosphere is perfectly fine here on Earth. It's not like we've got some place. There's not like a a region on the planet where the atmosphere is really dangerous. Uh, Or we don't have the potentially toxic soil I mean in some extreme environments you could have toxic soil and dangerous atmospheric conditions especially around really polluted areas but typically on earth we're we're pretty okay in those realms uh and it would be pretty unethical to subject anyone to staying in a a really dangerous zone just for the sake of experimentation but the goal of high seas isn't to create a perfect representation of what it would be like to live on mars it's not meant to subject people to the extremes of the environment, it's really to discover the best ways to keep a crew healthy and happy as they live in isolation. So yeah, the crew had to behave as if they were on Mars. You know, they had to behave as if all of those conditions were in play. But more importantly, they had to figure out how to design a habitat and a series of missions to make sure the crew could coexist and cooperate throughout the duration of the mission over months and months of time. So how do you keep people from succumbing to loneliness or irritability? How do you make sure they get the nutrition they need to stay healthy and active? That was the real experiment. Not so much the technology side, but the psychology side. And it all began as a collaboration between a whole bunch of different companies and research organizations and colleges. So here's the full list, and it's pretty long you got the University of Hawaii, you've got Cornell, you've got Michigan State University, Arizona State University, the University of South Florida, the University of Maryland, the Institutes for Behavior Resources, Smart Information Flow Technologies, Blue Planet Foundation, Pacific International Space Center for Exploration Systems, and NASA. And the result was that high seas organization. And they had plotted out exactly where they wanted to put this experimental habitat in a place that would closely resemble the surface of Mars and essentially abandon people for months at a time. Not really abandon people, I'll get more into that, but really limit the interaction people could have with anyone outside of the habitat itself. So the experiment site is on the volcano of uh, Mauna Loa, on the Big Island of Hawaii. And I'm being obnoxious the way I pronounce these things, largely because the Big Island of Hawaii is my favorite place to visit. I have been there multiple occasions. And it is probably the the slowest island in the chain, as far as like all the ones that people go to for uh, tourist purposes. Oahu is where Honolulu is. Uh, that's where the major airport is. That's where the major city is. Uh, you've got Kauai, which is gorgeous uh, and tiny, and and they shot a lot of Lost on Kauai. And uh, it's beautiful, but a little touristy. Eh, it's a little small touristy section. And then you've got Maui, which is like the resort island. I've been to Oahu. I've been to those islands and Big Island. Big Island to me is my favorite. It is a little more laid back, and it has a lot of different ecosystems from rocky beaches, to rainforest, to grassland, to snow on top of the volcanic peaks, including Mauna Loa. Mauna Loa gets snow at the top of it, at the, the higher elevations. It is not the tallest of the volcanoes on the big island. Uh, the tallest would be Mauna Kea. Um, and also it can be confused with Kilauea. Kilauea is the the volcano you would really be looking at if you went to the Volcanic National Park. And you were looking at the, the lava flows uh, that are either coming from a vent or going out a rift into the ocean. Uh, that's Kilauea on on one side of the island. But the biggest of all the volcanoes, the largest in, in just sheer size, is Mauna Loa. And it is an active volcano. So this experiment is located on an active volcano. Now, that being said, eruptions are rarely violent. They do happen But the eruptions are more like lava flowing out of the volcano or almost like it's leaking out of the volcano, not being propelled up in a big flume like you would think in a traditional volcanic eruption. It tends to flow from the summit down toward the edges of the island in what is often called the curtain of fire. There are these rifts in the earth and they act almost like channels where the the lava will flow through. Uh, while the eruption itself can be relatively nonviolent, they're still pretty destructive, right? Like you can have a slow-moving lava flow that will cause real damage to property. It's rare that anyone gets hurt in these things because the lava moves at a walking pace. It's not going super fast. Uh, I think it hasn't been since the 1930s since someone was injured by an eruption, Everyone uh, tends to be able to get out of the way in time and evacuated, but it does cause damage because you know homes don't move, uh, and if a lava flow encounters a house, then you know you've just got a fire on your hands. But it's generally a pretty safe place. You get, you you aren't expected to have an a like sudden eruption that's going to put you into danger. Uh, the site for the simulated Martian habitat is located at about eight thousand feet elevation on Mauna Loa. Uh, The summit of the volcano, if you were to go at the very top, is 13,679 feet. So this is a little more than halfway up the full height of the volcano. And it's on uh, a slope um, that uh, keeps it fairly level. For comparison's sake, the primary observing site of the Mauna Loa Observatory is at 11,141 feet of elevation. So the Mauna Loa Observatory is is higher up. But don't confuse that with the Mauna Kea observatories. Those are astronomical research facilities on the taller peak of Mauna Kea to the north of Mauna Loa's summit. Uh, Mauna Loa's observatory is an atmospheric observatory, primarily keeping an eye on CO2 levels in our atmosphere. Now, the habitat itself is in an abandoned quarry on the northern slope of Mauna Loa. The team picked that site because it has very little vegetation. It looks like the surface of Mars. It's this rocky, barren kind of of, uh, area. Uh, there are no rare or endangered species that make it a home. So there was no chance of having a negative impact on an endangered species. And so you would also have a a fairly accurate representation of Mars and you would not be bringing harm to any threatened species. Uh, also there are no cultural or archeological sites in that area. So the team wouldn't be causing any harm to something of cultural or historical value. Which I think is incredibly intelligent. Um, the Hawaiian people have a very rich history. Uh, their culture is phenomenal. And of course, uh, the, the European explorers who came in had a huge impact on that culture. So trying to not make it, trying not to endanger that rich history more is really important from a sociological standpoint. Uh, if you ever get a chance to look into their culture, really, you should do it, because it is it is a beautiful and incredibly fascinating culture. So the habitat itself was designed by V. Paul Ponteux of the Envision Design, and it was built by the Blue Planet Foundation of Honolulu, and it's super-duper cool, you guys, so it's a geodesic dome. That's the main habitat. A geodesic dome that's 36 feet in diameter and it has two stories. The volume inside the dome is 13,570 cubic feet. Now, not all of that is accessible. Uh, there's a very tall ceiling. Uh, like, like the second floor is only half, a half floor. So half of it looks out into the lower level. So you have this nice, tall ceiling over half of the lower level. And since it's a dome, the walls curve inward. So because they curve inward, you don't have full use of the space that's right along the edge of the walls, right? You couldn't, you couldn't stand up like a table or chair right up against the wall because the way the walls curve inside. On the ground floor, there are 878 square feet that are, that's considered to be usable space. Uh, The ground floor has a kitchen, Dining room, bathroom with shower, a lab, an exercise room, and some common working spaces. The upper floor is a loft with about 424 square feet available. Uh, it has six state rooms and one half bath. That ceiling's pretty high. And the reason why they have that high ceiling in the first place is studies have shown that it, the longer t- the amount of time you spend in a place, the more it seems to shrink to you. So you want the space to already be pretty lofty, pretty tall and, and open because you're going to have that shrinking effect and you don't want people to start feel like they're they're penned up or they're trapped. It's very important from a psychological point of view. Uh there are actually some pictures on the high seas website where you can take a look. At the rooms and the layout and some of the the equipment inside this habitat, and I recommend you do it because they're pretty cool. Uh, they only have a few that are actually of the interior of the habitat. Most of their pictures are of the exterior or of uh, the various participants dressed up in simulated spacesuits as they go outside. Because in order to simulate an an experience on Mars, you are not allowed to leave the habitat without first going through a simulated Airlock experience, including getting all geared up inside a simulated spacesuit. Uh, very important if you want to make as as accurate as possible as the experience on Mars would be. Uh, disregarding the other stuff we already talked about, like the fact that you're not going to be able to simulate 38% of Earth's gravity here on Earth. The picture of the kitchen makes it look really nifty and modern. It has a stove, an oven, uh, it's got a microwave, a bread maker, and a crock pot. Um, they thought that by giving the participants different abilities to prepare food, it would also help morale. Uh, toward the end of the first mission, Commander Angelo Vermeulen talked about the foods that were a big hit versus the ones that did not go over so well to kind of, ha- you know, help with the future experiments. There have been four missions so far in the high seas habitat. The first one lasted four months. And that's the one I'm talking about right here that Commander Vermeulen was working on. He said that the foods available to the crew were limited to ones that could be easy to carry in a spacecraft, whether it would be carried in the spacecraft that the astronauts going to Mars would use or a spacecraft sent ahead of time or a resupply mission sent later on to send more cargo and supplies to people already on Mars. Um, In any case, you have to make sure that you you are packing stuff that is uh, space efficient, right? Meaning that you can pack a lot of it into a small area and that it's not too heavy. So uh, he said that the favorites in the pre-prepared category, so these are ones that were ready to go, you just had to heat them up in some way, uh, included creamy wild rice soup, mashed potatoes, raspberry crumble, and applesauce, among others. The least favorite of the pre-prepared foods was one called kung fu chicken, which the entire group described as being mostly tasteless and slimy in texture. The team also prepared meals uh, for themselves and for each other using ingredients that were sent along, and those met with a lot of success. Those meals included everything from a seafood chowder to Russian borscht uh, to Moroccan tangine uh, and others. They also like to use tortillas a lot to make various wraps. Apparently, this is also a big hit aboard the International Space Station. Tortillas are easy to pack, and you can put a lot of different stuff in them. So they talked about experimenting with all sorts of things, from breakfast foods to fish and everything else, and apparently those were a a huge hit. But in general, pre-prepared meals were actually favored, not because they tasted better, but because they didn't require a lot of work and thought to prepare them. If you're working all day trying to complete mission objectives and every single day they had mission objectives they were supposed to meet, then you are putting a lot of thought and energy into cooking and uh, it's exhausting. It's overwhelming. So instead, if you were to go the pre-prepared route where you don't really have to think very much and cooking is easy and cleanup is a breeze, that is an easy choice. You could see that. Also, if you were to go with the preparation mode, like the full-on cook-a-meal mode, it means using more water than you would with pre-prepared stuff. And water conservation is incredibly important. Water would be a very precious resource for astronauts on Mars. You would need to have a very careful way of managing your water supply. Now, assuming we do send people to Mars, we will likely create means to get water from Mars itself. There is frozen water on Mars, and there are probably different ways that we could harvest water from mars but even so you would want to be very judicious with your use of it and you would want to conserve as much as you could and reuse as much as you could and more on that in just a minute the commander also said he figured future missions should have uh, more comfort foods for particularly stressful days Um, he said that there should be a lot more spices herbs and hot sauces to add a kick to foods and give them more flavor And there needed to be more foods with uh, fiber in them. Apparently the fiber content of a lot of the the foods they had was fairly low, which, you know, you don't want to have a regular problem with a lack of fiber. So some of the ingredients included in that first mission, this is just a small list of some of the ones that jumped out at me that I thought were kind of interesting. Anchovies. Awesome. Pre-cooked bacon. Freeze-dried meats, which the crew said were really only good if you used them as an ingredient within a bigger dish. You wouldn't want to eat one of the freeze-dried meats on their own because they had very little aroma and less taste, so you essentially just got a meat consistency with no flavor to it. They had a lot of different freeze-dried vegetables and fruits. They had nuts and seeds. They had pastas and other starches. They had baking ingredients like flour and yeast, uh, they had powdered dairy products. They had tea, coffee, and other drinks, including tang. They had seasonings and condiments. Uh, some of my favorite ingredients listed included canned eel, popping corn, masa, which I really do like to cook with, powdered eggs, poi—that's very Hawaiian—Velveeta cheese, and of course tang. You gotta have tang on your on your space trip. And uh the high seas experiment assumed the residents on Mars would receive regular supplies from Earth, so that was they would actually b- hire a company to bring shipments of food and water at certain intervals during the experiments to to represent a resupply mission sent from Earth to keep the astronauts supplied because um, you you wouldn't want to pack a full year's worth of food and water onto the habitat all at once, it would be prohibitively uh, large. You would have to have a much larger space and that would not be very efficient. Remember, the larger the habitat, the more you have to pack in in order to maintain the proper air pressure. Uh, You'd need more oxygen and it it just, it it makes everything more complicated. So you want to find that perfect balance where it's efficient, but not so small that it's going to make Habita- uh, the habitants go space crazy. You don't want space madness; that's bad. As for that exercise area, the astronauts used it a lot. In particular, during the first mission, uh, there were some projects that NASA was conducting. Some some experiments they were using. They were studying how well different types of materials hold up to prolonged activity and wear. And they were looking at two things. They were looking at how much does the material stand up to wear and tear? Like, does it does it maintain its integrity? And also, how long can someone go wearing the same clothing before they stank up the joint? And that's serious. They really did do that. Because, again, you want to conserve your water. You're not going to be taking a shower that frequently. And so they wanted to find micro, uh, bacterial type fibers, or antimicrobial, I should say, fibers, that would limit the effect of bacteria on a person's skin from creating a stink and stinking up the joint. Uh, when you have six people working in close proximity, you don't want to have a lot of BO filling up that habitat. So that was one of the experiments on that first mission. Just imagine going out there and exercising your heart out and hoping that your antimicrobial underthings can keep the job going. According to one former participant, most folks would exercise along with exercise videos like Insanity or P90X. So that's pretty hardcore. Uh, obviously, on the surface of Mars, things would be different because, again, you would have that lower gravity. So you'd have to figure out a lot of different resistance training type, exper- uh, type uh, approaches to allow for appropriate amounts of exercise uh, where you're not just bouncing all over the habitat. Now the staterooms were basically big enough for a bed, a stool, and a small computer desk. And of course there's no view outside. The dome was made out of flexible material. The rooms have like a plywood kind of, uh, roof to them. So, uh, there's a fabric shell on the outside. On the inside you have this like plywood roof. It's solid. You don't have a view. Um, and I think the only porthole they have is Near the entrance of the actual habitat where you would go through the whole airlock, uh, system. Uh, otherwise, you don't, or you're just looking at the interior of the habitat. Now, the pictures of the rooms are kind of cool. I think Harry Potter would have felt right at home moving from his cupboard under the Dursley stairs to the high seas facility. It would have seemed like pretty much a one to one comparison. Uh, you would store all of your belongings, like your clothing and stuff, under the bed. There's no closet or anything. In fact, the, the bedroom looks like a closet. Uh, the beds themselves are positioned so that the one of the long edges is against the outer side of the wall, right? So that way, when you open the door, you're looking at the side of the bed, essentially. You could take maybe two steps and then sit down on your bed. And then you have your little b desk and your stool there, too. Uh, so that, that computer desk I mentioned, the team did have access to computers and the internet, but in order to simulate the isolation someone would feel on Mars, all communications between the participants and the outside world were delayed by around 20 minutes. Uh, that simulates the amount of time it would take data to make its way from Mars to Earth at the speed of light. Now, like I said before, the distance between Mars and Earth varies throughout their respective orbits around the sun, but a rough average is a 20 minute Uh, 20 light minute gap, meaning it takes light 20 minutes to pass between Mars and Earth. So that means there was no way to chat in real time. It was all asynchronous communication. And all the websites they could access were cached images. So they couldn't have access to a dynamic website. Uh, They're not going to look at a website that is changing in real time. They would look at a cached version of it. This was all to simulate the limitations they would face if they were actually on Mars. Power for the habitat came from solar panels and batteries. Uh, Solar power, obviously, if you don't use the electricity generated from a solar panel right away, you waste it. So you have to either use it or store it. So you would use the solar power to power the stuff inside the habitat and store any excess electricity in batteries. They also had a hydrogen fuel cell to provide backup power if the batteries ever fell below 5% capacity. So that way you wouldn't have an interruption in power. Obviously, that would be devastating on Mars itself. Inside the habitat, they also had a 3D printer, which allowed the crew to print out replacement parts for equipment if something had broken. Let's say like a a leg on a a small table is wobbly. You could actually print out a little 3D stopgap so that you stop it from wobbling. Or it might be something way more serious. Or it could even be something simple like a comb. So you didn't have to pack a comb, you just print one when you get there. Thought that was kinda cool. The two bathrooms in the habitat had, uh, or have, cause the habitat still exists, have composting toilets. Poop is important, y'all. Uh, if you were on Mars, you might want to use poop as fertilizer for the soil you are using to grow plants in. You would actually have to process the poop, you know, you'd have to process a little bit. It's not like you would just dump the poo into a uh a a field of you know whatever it was you're growing radishes or potatoes in the case of the martian but um you would you know want to save that so they were trying to keep that similar also they had to learn how to repair composting toilets because sometimes stuff breaks as for water the habitat had a water tank or has a water tank i keep using the past tense but I should stress they still plan to do two more missions with the high seas habitat. So it's not like it's gone away, uh, has a water tank that can store about 1000 gallons. The project hired people to bring water and refill the tank at regular intervals, but it was important that it wasn't so frequent to make it easy. The team inside the habitat had to plan out their water usage so that they did not run out of water. It was a really tough challenge. Uh, now on earth, we would be able to send water supplies up occasionally, but not that frequently, because again, once the Mars and Earth orbits are out of alignment, it takes way more energy for us to get to Mars, and that means more fuel, and that means more expense and a bigger technological challenge. So you really don't want to have to send more water if you really can avoid it. Uh, they didn't go to the extremes of water conservation that you would find aboard like the International Space Station, where scientists have attempted to recapture as much water as possible, including water people breathe out, just the water you would lose the respiration. Uh, That kind of water on the ISS, they tried to reclaim as much of that as possible, uh, filter it, and then reuse it in various ways. But they did look at different ways to pay attention to conservation and recycling. Uh, During the year-long mission that just concluded the team actually had to respond to a water emergency. They had planned out how much water consumption they would go through uh, through the month of July, and they worked it out to like the, the millimeter of how far down the water tank they would go. But then the water supplier, the company that actually would come up and refill the water tank, suffered a mechanical failure. It, it had nothing to do with the habitat. It wasn't their fault at all, but it meant that the water that would come in and resupply them wasn't coming. And This is a simulation. They can't just get a different company to come out and deliver water. Something like this might happen on a real Martian mission. So the crew had to figure out what they wanted to do. Now, they had an emergency backup water tank, but it hadn't been touched in years This emergency water tank had existed since the very first mission, but no one had had to use it. So they weren't sure about the quality of the water. They had no idea if it would be drinkable, if it would be safe to drink, and they lacked the equipment to test it because that would take up even more space. And if you don't absolutely need something, you're not going to take it in a habitat that has very limited space to it. So they had to figure out a way to make the water usable and be, and, and be sure that it was safe without having the ability to test it. So what they did was they did an old fashioned method of distilling the water. They put, uh, they put containers or pots of water inside a big plastic, uh, tote, essentially. And they had a, an electric heater element. An electric heater element would heat up the pot of water so that the water would boil. On top of the tote, they put a plastic sheet. And they clamped it down along the sides. They had just regular old clamps that they used. Uh, Boy, I wish Joe McCormick were here because he loves clamps. But they they put clamps all along the edges and kept it nice and tight. They put a spoon over the center of the plastic sheet to create an indentation, a dip in the sheet. Kind of like if you were to imagine a bowling ball on a trampoline. It makes the material dip down. So steam from the boiling water would rise up, it would condense against the plastic, the drops of water would slowly slide down to the lowest point where the spoon was, and eventually drip down into the container itself. The water that would drip down was safe to drink, it had been distilled. And so they were able to make drinking water this way. They just had to constantly keep checking on the water, make sure that it was at the right level, uh, and replace the water in the pots. So they added that to their daily activities, but otherwise, it didn't impact the mission. So they were able to continue their mission and respond to this water emergency in a way that was realistic. You know, It didn't require them to step outside of the simulation in order to keep it going. So that was really cool. Now, next to the habitat itself is a steel shipping container that serves as a workshop for the habitat. It's actually attached to the habitat. So the participants can pass back and forth between the uh, shipping container and the habitat itself in order to uh, do more work. But they wouldn't necessarily have to don a full spacesuit in order to do that. And like I mentioned, they have completed four simulated missions so far. The first took place in 2013. It lasted four months long. The second mission took place in 2014, the early part of 2014, and lasted another four months. The third began in the fall of 2014 and lasted six months. And the fourth mission began on August 29th, 2015 and ended a year later. So it was just a few days before I recorded this. Uh, obviously, for the experiment to be meaningful, everyone has to behave as if they are, in fact, on Mars. Uh, again, they don't have to pretend like they're in low gravity situations. That would be ridiculous. It would be, it would require you to exert way too much energy. But going outside the habitat meant putting on a spacesuit, going through that simulated airlock uh, scenario before you could go out. And because the project was simulating an actual visit to Mars, they would receive mission objectives that would require the participants to do this on a fairly frequent basis. Every single mission they've done has had several Mars walks included, uh, where they were sent off to specific locations to take information down, make observations, explore things like lava tubes and vents, um, which was really cool. I mean, it it allowed them to actually do real work. They were actually doing real research. It's just the the research in this case was Earth research. They were just simulating the experience of it as if they were on Mars. So the information they gathered is useful to us. It's just useful to us as people on Earth, which is kinda cool. It was like a, a two for one in a way. Now it also meant that the team had to show discipline when entering or leaving that that habitat. Um, and sometimes they would actually plan out a Mars walk when they didn't have one on the schedule simply to occupy their minds. Because boredom is a real problem when you're in that, that type of isolation, especially if you're in there for a whole year. And keep in mind that a habitat on Mars would have a much higher internal air pressure than the planet would. So the air pressure inside the habitat would be very, very high compared to the Martian atmosphere. And that means if you opened up the habitat without using an airlock, the air inside the habitat would rush out. It would blow out of the habitat and go out into the atmosphere and dissipate. And that would be no bueno. That, that's end of, end of habitat. You would, you would lose air pressure and uh, you would have a catastrophic emergency which also happens in The Martian. No spoiler there, either. It's a big part of the story, and you would imagine that would have to happen in order to up the stakes on the, the drama. The the When the stakes start with being abandoned on Mars, there are only so many things you can do to increase the stakes at that point, and you have to do that in order to have a compelling story. All right, let's talk about the participants of this most recent experiment, the people who spent an entire year in isolation with one another. The six strangers, as I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast. Uh, first of all, the the High Seas Project always seeks out participants who are astronaut-like, meaning they have the qualifications that NASA would look for when choosing astronauts for their various spacefaring missions. So you already have to be a pretty remarkable person to be considered to take part in this experiment. Uh, They have to be physically fit, they have to be mentally fit, and they have to have at least one degree in science or engineering. And most of them have multiple degrees. We're talking mega, super smart people. As I was looking through the various uh, accomplishments and degrees that a lot of these participants have, I started to feel very badly about myself. I consider myself to be a fairly smart person, but these folks leave me in the dust. So... Uh, each team member has assigned duties that they must complete day to day. Sometimes it's mundane stuff like cleaning up the habitat or cooking or something along those lines. Sometimes it's mission-oriented stuff like going out on a Mars walk or conducting experiments within the habitat itself. But they can also pursue personal research projects during the course of the experiment. So a lot of the people who apply to be part of high seas are also graduate students, typically. Uh, and a year-long commitment's a big deal. I mean, you can do some really serious research within the course of a year, but that's a full year of your life. So here's the mission team from Mission 4. You had Commander Carmel Johnston. She's a soil scientist from Montana, and her primary focus was to study how a Martian crew might grow food on a real mission. Uh, You had Christiane Heinecke, a physicist and engineer from Germany. She had worked on projects ranging from electromagnetic uh, phenomena like the polar lights to simulations of the Earth's mantle before she joined high seas. Super smart. Like, her degrees are crazy because they focus on so many different different disciplines of science. Uh, she clearly is very intelligent and very curious, which is awesome. Then there was Shana Gifford. Uh, she also has a ton of academic credentials, including degrees in clinical laboratory science, biotechnology, journalism, and neuroscience. And she's also a science communicator. So as a fellow science communicator, again, I am humbled by her accomplishments. I should get her on the show if I can. Uh, you had Andre Stewart, an aerospace engineer and flight engineer for NASA. He's also, uh, he was working for Lockheed Martin before this, this project. And there's also a picture of him in the habitat wearing a Jane hat from Firefly. So that's kind of awesome. Uh, then you have uh, Cyprien Versu, an astrobiologist expert. One of his goals is to pioneer ways that future Martian colonists will produce various resources using biological processes, which would mean you'd use, you know, like bacteria to produce stuff you would need. You would genetically modify the bacteria so that waste products that otherwise would just be thrown out, could be converted into useful stuff. That could be everything from helping generate food, uh, or oxygen, or rocket fuel, even. And the goal is to make Martian colonies, future Martian colonies, more independent from Earth. Not as like some sort of utopian society, but rather, you don't have to rely on so many resupplies. You can support yourself independently, which would really increase the success probabilities of such a, a colony be really important. So that was really what he was focused on. And then you had Tristan Basingthwaite, who's an architect and he was studying human habitation in extreme environments. So kind of a, a person who's living through this experience, making note of it, making suggestions for what future habitats should incorporate, maybe Maybe elements they should get rid of or elements they should add. Stuff that will, again, improve the success rate of any future Martian colony. So what was the outcome? Well, they spent a full year in that habitat. So that part was a success. They did not have to end the experiment early. No one got severely injured. Uh, One of the bright spots, they said, is that when you are six people that are completely separated from everyone else, no one gets sick. Because viruses can't just spontaneously pop up. You could get uh, some food poisoning or something. And in fact, one of the participants did get hit by like a stomach uh, bug of some sort. Uh, or just maybe something they just did not agree with them for one reason or another. But apart from that, they couldn't pass anything along to each other because they were all healthy when they went into the habitat. So they said that was kind of cool. Uh, but keeping people happy when isolated for a really long time is very difficult. According to members of the crew, one of the best ways to improve morale is through emergencies. Really. Because an emergency requires the crew to work together and focus on a particular task. You cannot act as a lone wolf or else everybody dies. The mission is in jeopardy. So when the emergency is over, everyone feels satisfied and they feel closer to each other. Uh, but being in those close quarters for that long doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the best of buddies with everyone when it's over. Uh, they, the participants have been pretty diplomatic about this, but it's clear that some folks are going to be in touch with each other for a very long time and other folks maybe not so much. Um, so it's not like everyone becomes inseparable at the end of this. So that's kind of interesting. There's very little privacy in the habitat. I mean, everyone has their own private bedroom, but that bedroom, like I said, is a closet. Uh And there's no real space to kind of get away unless you go to that bedroom, assuming that you have the time to do so because you also have duties to perform. And most of the, the stuff, the the actual possessions in the habitat were pretty much considered communal property. You could have private possessions, But you also understood that those private possessions might end up getting pulled into a solution to a problem. So it may mean the thing you were thinking of as yours becomes important to solve an engineering issue. It sounds very kind of MacGyver-ish, but it's true. And it's also a challenge to learn how each person is going to respond to and manage the stress of being in this isolated environment. Some management strategies, like being passive aggressive, don't work in a small enclosed environment where people can't get away from each other. And also you had the challenge of cultural differences being involved. This was an international series of missions, meaning that there were people from all different parts of the world who could potentially be part of this. Uh, Now, that meant a couple of different things that cultural differences could rear up and cause friction. But it also meant that people got to try different cuisines from other parts of the world. And apparently that was one of the big things people really liked, the idea of trying stuff like home-cooked meals from other cultures. And it was an interesting way to broaden your horizons. But yeah, that cultural difference could also pose an issue with communication. So like I said, Basingthwaite himself was saying sometimes they would just plan an impromptu EVA, extravehicular activity, essentially a Mars walk, just to alleviate boredom, that you would go through the whole process of suiting up and going through the airlock, which could take around an hour to do. Uh That's a lot of work just to avoid tedium. Now, this particular mission, mission four of high seas, is over. It's not the only time we've ever seen people try to simulate the isolation people would feel if they were to go to Mars. Actually, in Russia, there have been a series of three experiments uh, where people were living in a simulated spacecraft. Uh, the, the three experiments collectively totaled 640 days, and the last of the three experiments was 520 days, so l- like a year and a half of isolation, uh, the mission included a simulated landing on Mars, that long one did, as well as three EVAs on the Martian surface. Uh, according to the Russians at the time, everything turned out swimmingly. There have been some other reports that said that there were, you know, there were issues. not Nothing that would stop the mission, but that not everything was absolutely perfect, as you might have been led to believe. Um, so there could be some propaganda stuff going on in there. I would imagine any group, even if you have very disciplined people, would suffer setbacks now and again, just because of the various different personalities and the stress involved. But what's next? Well, the next high-seas experiment is already in the planning stages. Uh, if you wanted to apply, oops, because this episode's going to come out too late for you to do that. I'm recording this on September 2nd, 2016, but applications are due on September 5th. And this episode goes up after that. And as far as I know, the applications are for both of the last two missions that are scheduled. One scheduled for 2017, one scheduled for 2018. They're both going to last eight months long each. So I apologize if you wanted to apply. It's too late. Those are supposed to be the two final experiments for high seas Though you never know, there may be another high seas experiment, perhaps a redesigned habitat. Um, I don't know how that's going to turn out after these last two missions, or if the whole thing will just say, all right, here's all the data we gathered, and now this branch of experimentation is over. That's a possibility. Uh, and then, of course, we have the long-term goal of actually going to Mars. A Martian habitat might be at least partially underground in a future Mars colony, The reason to put a Martian colony underground is to protect against that radiation I was talking about. You would want protection from cosmic radiation as well as X-rays, ultraviolet rays, that kind of stuff. And the Martian soil could do that for you. Since there's no magnetosphere, or not a strong one anyway, to protect you, you could protect yourself by burying your habitats under the ground. So you would probably have a few surface-level buildings with tunnels that lead down into underground habitats where people were actually living, and you would do the same process of getting into a spacesuit if you wanted to emerge out on the Martian surface. Uh, one of the different proposals I have seen, a lot of different uh, uh, proposed missions to Mars involve this, would include sending robots ahead of time to go and excavate an area where then they could assemble at least some of the habitats, and then pile dirt, regolith, on top of them to bury them. And that way, astronauts, when they arrive at Mars, would already have a place to go to. They wouldn't have to set it up themselves. That seems pretty intelligent to me. It would also involve sending cargo ahead of time, so that when the the Martian uh, colonists or the explorers, more likely explorers than colonists first off, uh, when they land... They would already have some of their stuff there. They wouldn't have to take everything with them. And thus, again, you could spread out the weight of all of that stuff across multiple launches instead of trying to pack it all into a single one. And they could then take those that cargo, store it in the proper space, and start their mission. Uh, probably for a couple of years. And then try a return trip to, to Earth. We're talking about probably a full... Like three to three and a half years for a full Martian mission when you include the trips out to Mars, back from Mars, and the time spent on Mars. Uh, I think it's really exciting. And I love that we have been working very seriously on designing a habitat that meets both the technical requirements we would have on Mars and the psychological requirements we would have. Because if you've ever really used any technology developed entirely just by engineers, you may notice, well, it works, but it doesn't work in a way that seems natural or intuitive. Sometimes that happens. And it may be that it makes perfect sense. It just requires you to think in a very specific way. You have to adjust your behavior and your thinking so that you get the most out of that piece of technology. But when you're talking about people living on another planet, you want that to be effortless. You don't want to have to adjust your thinking and your behavior to your destination, or at least not entirely. Some of that is absolutely necessary because of the differences between Mars and Earth. But you want the, the habitat to be as much benefit to you as possible. So anyway, thank you so much, Jeremiah, for... The suggestion. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun to look into. Um, I'm sad that I was not able to see this habitat the last time I was in Hawaii, which was not that long ago. When I was last in Hawaii, this experiment was underway. They were inside the habitat. But it It's not exactly on an easily accessible part of Mauna Loa, which is part of the point, right? You wouldn't want it to be easily accessible. Then you could put the whole experiment at risk with tourists just walking up and standing on the surface of Mars in the background of the pictures as astronauts are trying to do missions. That would be a little silly. So I totally understand. Uh, But still, it's kind of a bummer, because I would love to see this place. I mean, I really, really would love to see this place. And I go to Hawaii a lot. So if anyone at high seas is like, hey, when we're not doing a mission, when we're not doing an experiment, uh, and you want to see this space come on over, please let me know, because I will do it in a heartbeat. I will book a trip to Hawaii so I can see it. First of all, I love Hawaii, uh, and I would love to go back again. And second of all, I think it would be the experience of a lifetime, even just to walk around this habitat and see the condition of the space and how, what it must feel like to be in that space, even just for a few, like a half hour as opposed to a full year. Uh It would be phenomenal. But I, I hold out very little hope that anyone at high seas is listening to this. Uh If they are, pass it along. I'd love to check it out. Guys, this has been a fantastic time for me. I hope you've enjoyed it. I didn't go into too much pirate voice, so I hope that helps and uh didn't make too many high seas puns. I really look forward to tackling a lot more uh, topics that you guys choose. Just send me messages. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or send it to me on Twitter or Facebook. At both of those, the handle is h s w. You can also follow my personal Twitter account. That's John Strickland, J-O-N-S-T-R-I-C-K-L-A-N-D. And um, I post all the time from there, often about my dog. So if you don't want to see that... I I don't blame you, but he is adorable, and you should look at him because he's the cutest. Uh, You guys have a great day. I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.